Hey, good to see you. How are you? It's uh, absolutely just going to be one of those nights. I got a feeling. You know what I'm saying? Great to great to see you guys. I'm pretty hot. Matt can turn me down a little bit. Got a feeling I'm going to get excited tonight. Uh, a couple things. A couple things on my heart too. Um, thank you. Thank you guys. Um, this past weekend just was absolutely overwhelmed by you. Uh, first of all, on Saturday, um, I watched a whole bunch of people, 65 to be exact, tear out an entire first floor of our new building. I actually shot some footage of this. This is uh, interesting. Uh, so here's some of us uh, just going to town there. You, you may see yourself up there. You see the hard hat over there. Uh, this is right before the death-defying brick wall almost falling on a couple of our folks. But as you can see, it was chaos. It's a miracle that there were only four bleeders, a couple of broken toenails, and uh, one near-death experience. But, um, but you, guys, you guys absolutely killed it, uh, as you can tell there, by the man in the brown shirt who's just walking back and forth aimlessly. Uh, you all worked hard. <laughs> all right, you can take that down now. Um, all two hours worth of footage, all for that 15 seconds. A lot of fun. Um, but thank you. Thanks for serving. Uh, I was... So incredibly humbled, secondly, by, by hearing all the stories of uh, what you all did on Sunday. Uh, you, uh, the body of this church, uh, delivered 270 coats to 117 families uh, in this city, uh, 85% of which were single moms. I, uh, I just want to say that it's, it's humbling um, to be a body together and to see how much you all serve. And how much you all desire to be obedient. And I just, from the depths of my heart, I just want to say thank you. So thank you for loving this city well. And for encompassing this vision. And I'll say this about the vision. We really believe that with time and commitment that it is possible to see an entire city uprooted by the gospel. Do you believe that? Because this isn't just pomp and circumstance. This isn't some creative coats just so we can give each other a high five on Wednesday afterwards. We really believe that love can overtake this city. And that's what we're working towards. And that the cross could sit on the throne here in St. Charles. You believe that? All right. The resounding yes. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. The page number is on your screen. Um, one of the most beautiful stories in the entire Old Testament tonight in Daniel 3. I'm not going to recap for those of you that have... Uh, that are just joining us who have been studying through Daniel. I'm going to recap uh, throughout the text because it naturally does it for us. But I'll say this. Um, that for those of you that have seen um, VeggieTales' portrayal of, of Daniel chapter 3, um, this story is much more than a chocolate bunny. Um, this chapter is a, um, an absolutely beautiful, beautiful chapter. Can I, listen, there's so much to do tonight. Can I, can I just, I, I just want to pray over, over our time right now. Is that cool? Let's pray and then we'll get going, all right? So God, humble our hearts now. Focus us in on your word and your scripture. And I pray, God, that nothing that I would do or say would be a distraction to the things that you desire to teach your people here tonight. In your awesome name, amen. Are you there, Daniel chapter 3? You guys all there? Say, I'm there. Verse 1, here we go. King Nebuchadnezzar made... An image of gold. Way to go, King Nebi. Now, uh, this gives us an opportunity to, uh, to set the stage a little bit. First of all, who is King Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of the modern known world. He's the ruler of this, uh, this huge empire called Babylon. Okay, And you'll remember just a chapter ago, 
he has this dream. And in the dream, he sees something like this. Show us the image of the dream there, please. He sees something like this. He sees a, a gold head in the dream, and he sees several other pieces. Now, the problem is he doesn't know the interpretation of the dream. So he sends for all of his wise men in the entire empire and says, listen, I don't just need you to tell me the interpretation of the dream. I want you to tell me the dream itself. Uh, but no one can do it. In fact, they say it's impossible. And so he says, you know what? All right, off with everyone's head then. Everyone dies. We saw his insecurity in that moment, that he had the audacity to kill off all of his wise men. But it doesn't quite happen because the chief executioner comes to our character, Daniel. And Daniel's like, hey, I'll tell the king his interpretation. All that before he had even heard it or seen it or known it. So he goes back to his house. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he prays with these men. God, give us mercy. Show me the dream. He falls asleep. God reveals the dream, and then he shares it with Nebuchadnezzar, and it was 100% accurate. Now, here's what happens. Uh, my son, we have to be very careful in the way we communicate with him. Um, and this is an example. Uh, some of you have know, uh, know when I talk about Dawson, he has, um, this, he has a very short attention span. In fact, it's in the negative. It's like negative second attention span, if that's even possible. But you have to communicate with Dawson. Like, you have to time it up. If you say, hey, Dawson, you want to go to the park before you're ready? Like, it's over right? So we know that we have to like change diaper, get drinks ready, pack car, and then you say, hey Dawson, you want to go to the park? Because then all of a sudden, like all of his, all of his, his, his attention goes right there. So you, just, you have to order it, right? Have you ever been telling someone a story, right? When you told the punchline first, and you could tell though the story, because you're a brilliant storyteller, lasted another 15 boring minutes. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that some people, like they're, they're not even listening because you gave like the punchline, the plot, the drama in the first sentence, right? Have you, have you ever been there before? Well, when Daniel interprets the dream, I think this is what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's like Dawson or like many of you. He hears something very specific. And the specific thing that he hears in the interpretation of the dream is what? You are the head of gold. Now Daniel interprets the rest of the dream, which talks about the, the next three empires that would come after Babylon. But all Nebuchadnezzar hears is, you are the head of gold. And so I picture Nebuchadnezzar in this moment when he had much angst about what the dream meant, that he's just sitting and reveling in the fact that he's the head of gold. And so in chapter 3, only a few verses after what happened, what did he do just a few verses ago? After Daniel interprets the dream, he falls on his face and the scripture says, paid homage to Daniel. He worships Daniel. He burns incense in Daniel's name. Then he tells Daniel, your God is the God of gods. Your Lord is the Lord of kings. And I told you last week, awe does not imply conversion. You can stand on top of a mountain and see God's beauty and yet know him not. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He knows God not. Obviously. He says, let's build a big golden image. Now, this isn't just any golden image. Check this out. Uh, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth, six cubits. And you're like, uh, cubits, I'm only familiar with the metric system, right? Uh, let's do a Jared Korzak, can you stand up for me real quick? Jared, give it up for Jared Korzak, everybody. There he is. Uh, now, Jared is probably the tallest man in here, all right? Uh, Jared, how tall are you? Six, five, all right? Can anyone beat six, five here? Anybody? All right, no one. So you are officially now the tallest man at Matthias. Congratulations. 
All right. Now, listen to this. Listen to this. These cubits measures out to 90 feet tall. So Jared's 6'5", so it's like seven Jareds. Hold on, you got to carry the one. It's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of Jareds, okay? A lot of Jareds. Now, just to give us a, a little bit, thanks Jared, to give us a little bit more of, a, of an example here. Okay, from this point in the stage to this brown piece here, we measured it out uh, by standing on top of each other's so, uh, shoulders. This, from here to there, is 35 feet from here to the top of the ceiling is 35 feet. This statue is 90 feet tall. And it's, and it's six cubits wide. A cubit is 20 inches. So 90 feet by anyone, quick math, how wide? Nine. All right? This, this is like an improportionate human being, right? Most humans are one to four, one to five. This is one to ten, right? This is like a totem pole, dude. Like this, this thing is tall and very, very narrow. Now to put this in a further perspective... A couple ancient statues. Uh, the Colossus at Rhodes of Rhodes. Have you guys heard, heard of the statue? It sat on a port in Greece. was built in the mid-200s. Uh, a huge ancient statue. It was built 300 or so years after uh, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds. It measures 107 to 120 feet. So pretty impressive. But even the huge statue of Zeus at Olympia only sat 45 inches. The Great Sphinx, 66 feet. All of these massive structures... Don't measure up except the roads at Colossus to the 90 feet tall that he builds. And it's all plated with what? With gold. I don't think it's solid gold. That would have been one beast of an expensive uh, gold piece of artwork, right? I think it's probably built of wood, but plated with gold. Now, why? Why does Nebuchadnezzar go from your God is the God of gods, your Lord is the Lord of kings to... Let's build a huge, enormous golden statue, right? How does, how does this happen and why? All he heard was, you're the head of gold. And so all he desires now is to bring all focus to himself. And so he builds literally one of the most expensive statues ever erected in the history of the world. The Statue of Liberty, by the way, 120 feet tall. This is a monster, right? Now, we get a little bit more indication about what the statue consists of here in the middle of verse 1. He set it up on the plain of what? Read your Bible there. On the plain of what? Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, this is creative. A plain is a? Yeah, okay, well said. It's a plain, yes. Captain Geography over there, right? A, a plain is a flat piece of land. Now, by all estimations, an ancient archaeologist, uh, listen, visited Babylon soon after it was destroyed. And he found six and a half miles to the southeast, in a, in a suburb, really, of Babylon, this massive brick base. So it's probable that this statue on the plain of Dura sat about six and a half miles to the southeast of the city of Babylon. Close enough where those from the city could go, but also far enough away on a plain that you could see it from a distance. Listen, listen, listen. Can you imagine a 90-foot golden structure on a plain the sun coming down, like the glimmer of that. I remember when, when I gave my wife like the engage, uh, an engagement ring, right? And, and girls are so funny. They're like, let me see the ring, you know? And, and, uh, and it just like, it had this glimmer to it because, and it's the only time, right? Because I don't know what kind of super sauce they put on those rings, like when they sell them. But I mean, the thing is like shining from miles away. They're like, yes, I'll take your 3,000, right? And then after that, it never looks the same. What's the problem, right? But, but imagine this golden statue, 
Did I say super sauce? I'm not, right? Yeah. Whatever that spray is called. You guys know what I'm saying? Imagine a golden statue in the middle of this plane, 90 feet tall, the shimmer that it would have had. Now, things get really, really interesting. Verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in his awesomeness, sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the official of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Unbelievable. He builds this golden structure, which, by the way, quick note on the chronological order here. We're guessing that this is soon after the interpretation of the dream because of the connection. We don't know how many days, months, or years, but soon after. So he sends for who? All of the leadership in Babylon. Probably listed here in order of, uh, in order of importance. The satraps are like the head of governors, then the governors, and the treasurers, and the magistrates, and all of these people that come. He calls all of his leaders to come to a, what, is it, what does the scripture say? Oh, what kind of service? A, a dedication. He's going to dedicate this statue. And so from all of the corners of Babylon, he calls all of his leaders together, and there they are. Now, if you think about it, this is a pretty brilliant strategy. His desire as a leader and visionary is to unify the whole of Babylon on one central thing, namely himself. It's a great visionary move. It's why presidential campaigns, though there's many issues, they have one slogan, right? It's why I like brilliant marketing campaigns. Like any, anyone right now could say Nike's slogan, right? Just do it. And the swoosh, like any brilliant thing from a visionary or leadership or marketing campaign goes, it one focus, one slogan. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's desire. If I can unify this whole of Babylon around this image, then as a leader, I've done something great because all of my leaders are all on one accord. That's why the gospel is so beautiful. That's why the story of God is about one central figure. Though you and I get confused from that often. The whole story of God from beginning to end, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and through the Spirit thereafter, is about Jesus. Every story whispers his name. Every piece of the scripture pointed to Christ and waiting on Christ. And then Christ is revealed. And then every writer after Christ writes about Jesus. Jesus is our central figure. But the great thing about our God different from Nebuchadnezzar is that when he points to a centralized figure, it's an unfailing centralized figure. He will never fail. And so when God points to his son Christ, sends him to the earth, he dies, he's resurrected, and he exalts him to the right hand of the Father. Do you understand? We, in Christianity, following Christ, get to follow an unfailing central figure in Jesus. That's why some of you need not be confused. And anyone who's struggling with other religions in conversations, it's easy. People ask me all the time, so tell me like what you believe about so-and-so. I'm like, no, 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 listen. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. Then the conversation, you go really cool. What do, you, what do you believe about Jesus? Oh, he was a good teacher. He was a prophet. I'm sure he, you know, I'm sure he just did those disciple things well. No, no, no. Jesus is Savior, Lord, reigning King, sitting at the right hand of God. If you don't believe that, not a Christian. You understand? We have the central focus, and Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to do 
that too. Verse 3. Then, this is hilarious. Then, at least to me. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay. When we type, uh, those of you that type, you type very quickly, all right? We have a depositioner here at Matthias who um, like, types like 300 million thousand words a minute, right? Listen, the, the question in the literary term here is like, why would they just repeat everything they just said? Like some, some poor scribe, like it takes days to like write this one sentence and the author is like, just repeat the sentence before, right? Like that would be a great idea. Why do this? It's to escalate the fact that they came. Nebuchadnezzar sends for his leaders and what does this verse point out? They come. They've gathered. They're here. All of these leaders that in their own right, people look to them. They're empowered and have powered in their pieces of Babylon. The governors, the satraps, the pro- all of these people come and they're all gathered here. That's why he repeats it. And look at this. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud... You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe. Any bagpipe fans here? Right? I love this, right? Any bagpipe and every kind of music. Listen, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoa, 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 whoa. Look, we don't get an indication, but I would venture to say that when the, when the invitation went out to the governor, it didn't read, you're going to come and you're going to be worshiping this golden image. I get the picture. This is the first time they've been told. And I get the picture. They probably thought they were coming to a ribbon cutting, right? And pretty soon they're realizing this is no ribbon cutting. Like this, this man, this herald has stood up. And like Pavlov's dog has said, anytime you hear the music, you fall on your face and worship. Any psych majors here, right? Pavlov and the whistle and the meat and everything, right? Like, you know, if you're not, look it up, right? Wikipedia.com, the reliable source, right? Like, you guys understand this, right? You play the music and you worship. Listen, I need you from here on out to get in the mind of all of those leaders. Right? You're a governor. You've been empowered by the king of Babylon to rule your particular area. You have confidence and strength and your own reign and rule. And now all of a sudden you've been gathered and you're looking across at all these leaders. And they're all standing, listen, before this huge, like two and a half times that golden statue. And the issue goes out, you're commanded. When the music plays, you fall in worship. Think about the tension and the angst as a leader. Why is there tension? Nebuchadnezzar or the herald has said nothing about the statue. He said nothing about it. He hasn't said, oh, by the way, boys, so I had this dream. And uh, I was the golden head. And so I've constructed this big, giant, golden statue to commemorate myself. He hasn't told them that. They've come and gathered, thinking it was a ribbon cutting... Now all of a sudden they're commanded to worship without being told anything, any given any context of why it is that they're going to be worshiping this thing. Think about what's going through their mind at this point. Tremendous angst and tension. It's like, hold on, I'm a leader and I know you're Nebuchadnezzar, but seriously, 
at least give us some context here. Now, idolatry and other gods wouldn't have been foreign to them, obviously. They, they have gods everywhere. But this is different. This is strange. This is a huge golden statue in the middle of a plain. And then he says, verse 6, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar likes death a lot. Um, this is his second massive death threat. You're a leader. You show up at what you think is a dedication service. First surprise, a Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, music plays, and, and the image here is this probably some massive kingly orchestra. But you're not just going to worship. If you don't, you die in the big fiery furnace. I'm going to talk more about the fiery furnace next week, but a quick note on it is it had to be hot enough to, to burn stone. Okay, I'm not like a fire analogist, but I know this. But listen, I know this. That, that, that's, that's one hot flame, okay? So we're not talking about like just throwing someone in a little like bonfire. We're talking about a massive kiln. So you're a leader. And you show up and you're surprised. And now all of a sudden there's been an element of punishment added. Why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? It's like all of a sudden we go from this like central focus, good leader, to now all of a sudden we're confused about what he's doing. Why wouldn't you give some options here? Why wouldn't you, like, why are you commanding this? But look at the response. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down. And the Aramaic here, and remember, there's three times in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, rather, where Aramaic is used. The Aramaic fell here is instantly. They heard the music, and all of these leaders standing before this great golden image, they fall immediately on their face. They fell down and worshiped the golden image that the fifth time, now we see this phrase, King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Music plays, they fall down. Now, listen. There is unbelievable things when you step back from this passage, that if you just take a moment and try to understand it, beauty just rises to the top. I know many of you are casual Bible readers at best. You just read the text as quick as you can, and the first question you always ask is, what does this mean for me? Okay? And for those people, you read this story, and you're like, don't build a big golden statue? Like, you know, like, don't, you know, hop in a fiery furnace? Like, if, if you just get there, if you just go there, you miss the beauty of what we just read. Seven verses. The king of the modern world builds a big golden statue to centralize the kingdom around himself. He calls all of his leaders together and he commands them, bow down or you die. Now, unbelievable stuff happens throughout this. Uh, put up my first slide here. I want to show you this. Now listen, you're going to have to stay with me here. So focus and stay with me, all right? Uh, I, I'm guessing here at the golden image, okay? Uh, how'd I do though? Those are some big triceps, right? Like we're being generous there to Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Now listen, these leaders, listen please, these leaders internally, they know not about what this golden statue is. They don't know what it is, what it represents and why they'd be bowing down to it. But they have to bow, why? If not, they die. Right? So inwardly, they're like, 
okay. But outwardly, immediate response. You see. Inwardly, they're like, are you kidding me? Like, this is, this is pointless. This is worthless. I don't even know what I'm doing here. I'm a leader. People look to me. Inwardly, all this is happening. Outwardly, what? Immediate response. Inward, okay. Out response, yes. Yes, King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to die. Now, I want to pause here and escalate something so we can keep going. This statue right now is the only time this statue was ever mentioned in Daniel. Which is significant because we know in two chapters that some crazy stuff starts happening with Nebuchadnezzar. Once Nebuchadnezzar is gone, there's no connection to the golden statue. Do you see what I'm saying? He doesn't set up the golden statue and then leave and people are still worshiping it. They only worship, why? Next slide. Because he says, bow or die. The only reason they bow down is because King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the ruler of the modern world, says, bow or you will die. And so out of fear of punishment... These men bow. They have to. Now, I can't assume that every heart wasn't in awe of, you know, that there may have been some hearts just in awe of this truly worshiping it. But I know from a leader's perspective that most of these guys are like, like, at least tell us what we're bowing down to here. This is ridiculous. Now things get really interesting. Stay with me. Next slide. I think we do this. I think we take the premise of Babylon, bow or die, and we thrust it on our experience in American culture. In other words, I've heard many people say before, this culture is, like, how do you even live as a Christian in this culture? It's just, it's so powerful. It's as if this culture is saying bow or die. Bow to these things. Next slide. Right? Like, bow to wealth and possessions, sex, success, the internet, children, athletics. You fill in the blank. It's like this overwhelming pressure as an American citizen to bow to all of these things. Have you ever felt that before? And if you don't, you get this sense inwardly, if I don't bow to these things, if I don't look at pornography, if I don't have a sexually charged relationship, if I don't want the American dream with the white picket fence and the two golden retrievers in the back, if I don't want these things, then somehow I'm isolated. I, I, I commit a social suicide. The problem is, different from Nebuchadnezzar, listen, no one has ever pointed a finger in your face in American culture and said, if you don't look at porn, you die. No one has ever said, if you escalate success, unless you do that, unless you strive for selfish, self-righteous success, you will die. No one has ever done that. And yet, for some reason, we have this urge within us just to succumb to this culture, like King Nebuchadnezzar has said, bow or die, it's like culture is saying, bow to these things or you're done. And many of us are just going with it. We just, we don't even know which way to turn. We don't know what else to do. We don't know if there's another option. And so we say, okay, okay, I'll indulge in whatever. If that's the consequence, then I guess I have to roll. Now, this gets incredibly dangerous. Next slide. When it affects the church. Here's what I mean and the pieces will start to come together. I fear. That some of you. That many of you. Are sitting in these pews. 
and you're saying, okay, I, I, guess the, I, I guess this is how I sing a song. I guess this is how I read my Bible. Inwardly, you're, just, you're, you're okay. All right, sounds good. No true heart change. No conversion, just appeasing man. Making sure that other people see you here that somehow they might think you're righteous or good. And you just come here and you're, okay, sir, that'll work. I'll just give in to the Christian culture. Outward, immediate response. You tell me to stand, I stand. You tell me to sit, I'll sit. You tell me to open my Bible, I open my Bible. When in my heart, I'm just saying, okay. Now, those same people, listen, are the same Christians that are claiming Christianity with their mouth and are sitting in American culture and to both sides, they're saying, okay. You're sitting here and saying, all right. And then you're sitting in the world and saying, sure. Bow or die. The problem is, Nebuchadnezzar would never convert a soul if it was just bow or die. It's not true conversion, you see. It's not true conversion to say, you need to bow or you will die. What's happening in their heart is just okay. It's not true transformation. Yes, I worship this golden statue. Doesn't happen. When it's just attributed to punishment. When it's just attributed to law and rule. It's not the gospel. Do you guys get this? This is why I love Lisa's testimony in the video. I grew up and all my life it was checklist. Do this. Don't do that. Scratch that. Make sure you sing like this. And there was no freedom in it. Why? Because the gospel then is just bow or die. It's heaven or hell. It's fire insurance or Yahtzee land. Instead of just the person of Christ. Then we're just the same as Babylonian culture in the church. Some dictator or person standing up saying, do this, don't do that, with no freedom, with no experience, and all the while just saying, okay, I just go, I'll just go with the status quo, the stream of consciousness. Listen, Jesus came to this earth, please listen, he came to this earth, and he never said, okay, you get that? He never said, okay, he said, yes, yes, God. I will be obedient. I will come to this earth. Philippians 2, I will humble myself. I will fall on my face before you. I will plead in the garden of Gethsemane if there's any other way, but your will be done. I will say yes. Jesus said yes to God and not just okay, so that you can too. So that the church can claim victory in the cross and look in the face of culture and say, I do not have to look at porn. I do not care about the American dream. I do not care about the pursuit of success for my name's sake. It's about Jesus. Because Jesus said, yes, you can too. And there's so many of us here tonight just burdened still with the law, with religion and the rules and the regulations, not experiencing the true freedom of Christ coming and saying, yes, God. And so the culture and Christianity 
They just intermingle. You can't tell a difference anymore when I believe the purpose of the gospel in St. Charles is that there would be a whole bunch of people who are looking in the face of culture, loving it, saying, I don't need to look at porn. I don't have to. It's not bow or die. I don't need to build a white picket fence. I don't need to gather possessions for me to feel worthy. Jesus said yes, so I can say yes to God. If not, we're just like Babylon. Bow or die. And so we come together, no heart change, bowing before a golden image that one day, trust me, crumbled. Listen, I know so many of you tonight, you're just burdened. No freedom in Christ. The power of the gospel has just gone from you. And you sit here tonight feeling like you've just been saying, okay, okay, God, I guess this and I guess that, instead of a resounding yes. I must follow you. I can say no to culture. It's not bow or die. It's bow and live. And yes, hell is a reality. And yes, eternal punishment is the penalty but Jesus escalates life. And tonight, you and I can say yes. And so I want to call you out of the American push. And for many of you tonight who have just been indulging on the hamster wheel of sin, it's time tonight for you to repent, to call upon the name of the Lord, and to be saved. And say, yes, God. No to culture and it's sin push. And yes to God and life. I believe it's possible through the blood of Jesus. Let's stand together.